While this podcast may discuss medical issues and at times answer or discuss listeners' questions, this podcast is not offering any individual medical advice nor meant to substitute for individualized professional medical treatment or advice. So please remember that all content is for informational purposes only. And please consult with your own healthcare provider for your own issues and diagnosis. If you think you may have a medical emergency, do the right thing and call your doctor or go to a local emergency room or call 911 immediately. Never delay seeking individualized help for a problem based on something discussed here. Take care of yourself. You're worth it. You gotta love that mouth harp, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of No Prisoners. I'm Brad Garrett, and this is without question uh, the end of my career. (laughs) Thank you for joining me. Uh, You heard this disclaimer, because we're going to be talking about uh, uh, things that have to do with mental health. And and all I know is I'm a patient. I'm not a doctor. I've played one on TV, and poorly. So that should give you confidence. Um, this all came about during this this COVID quarantine, and I, I would be on social media more than usual because uh, I'm lonely. I'm lonely, and I have to feed my voices. And I would start to to actually answer people on Instagram or Twitter, and we were all being affected so negatively in this. Uh, uh, quarantine, especially people, I, be, I believe we're all fucked up to varying degrees. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say that because we're humans, we have baggage, we're raised with shit. We either decide to deal with it, or we hide it, or we numb it, um, or we find a way to to just white knuckle our lives. And and the more I talk to people, my friends, my relatives, people on Instagram, the, the, the 28 followers that are nice enough to, to see how I'm doing, I would talk to them and the world is in a state where depression, anxiety, addiction, all of that stuff is now amplified and magnified because we're in an environment, we're in a world that we've never had to deal with. And, um, that made me say, you know, I'm the last guy on the block to get a podcast. What do I know? My gardener, for God's sakes, has a, has a fucking podcast. And it's brilliant. And he does this whole thing about tulip bulbs in the spring, which I'll show you later. Um, but it made me say, you know what? I, I, I don't have many celebrity friends. Do we really need to hear from more celebrities and their movies and their books and their TV shows or their concerts? What if we get real people to talk about real shit? Because I know I'm dealing with mine. Um, I have 23 years of sobriety. I will tell you it is uh, very much one day at a time. But um, I've been able to work through a lot of my fear. Uh, I still have obsessive compulsive behavior at times. I will sometimes find myself substituting something for what may have been a substance in the past, be it food or maybe a little gambling until four in the morning, even though I say, well, it's, it's small stakes. I may, um, I think what my issue is mostly is I'm, uh, um, an instant gratification junkie. And I think that is something why, why I'm in this business because I love the rush of standup, uh, there's nothing, uh, nothing like bombing, which I do all the time, and just knowing you can get out alive, or doing jokes that are kind of, mm, I don't know, confrontational, maybe a little non-PC. So that's what brought me to do a show like this. No prisoners. Uh, I've kind of lived my life that way. I've been brutally honest, especially when I stopped my substances. Um, my dad used to say, "God bless him," who was bipolar. He would say, "Kid, you gotta shave eventually." You got to shave. 
which means you got to look in the mirror and you got to call yourself on shit. Uh, I was raised around a lot of mental illness. I've struggled with it myself. Both of my parents were bipolar. My mom might have been tripolar. Um, I, I, I think there was actually a third pole that they found with this woman, bless her. Um, but I remember my whole life, uh, my dad was incredible and such a supporter and, and, and so difficult on himself. And we didn't know what it was for years. And um, he would go through these manic episodes and there would be these amazing highs and lows as you get with bipolarity and uh, the grandiosity that goes with it, the empowerment, the omnipotence that goes with it. And I thought, man, he's really fun. It's like living with a superhero. And then I got to be a little older and I was like, you know, what are we doing trying to buy a motorboat at one in the morning in Oxnard, California? So things got a little... uh, a little cheeky, as my uh, British friend would say. Got a little cheeky. And uh, it made me look at my own stuff. I loved to numb. Um, I miss some of it, but I don't miss the dread. And I don't miss the apologies. And I don't miss the guilt. And I don't miss waking up in Peru with one shoe on. It was really Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires. So, um I love my sobriety. I try to stay grateful. I do still have my pity parties, but uh, that's what No Prisoners is all about. We're about uh, just being honest, talking about uh, our shit, things that scare us, um, and the people that are on here. And I'm going to start with someone who is really, uh, especially for this industry, which is surrounded by people who are so full of shit, um, I had the pleasure and she would call me on my shit too, and I would call her on hers. And I think that's how we kind of fell in love. I'm not her type, but I will tell you with 100% uh, honesty, I would have given it a run. She wouldn't have been happy, but you know, that's life. You, you learn to bend. Um, I met Jolie Fisher when she agreed to play my wife, uh, our first choice actually to play my wife on a show that we were both on called uh, Till Death. We were on Fox for four years. And um, we actually used to talk, the ratings were so fucking low that, that, that we, and Jolie, don't say no, because they, they were, they were, I, we should have been canceled. We really thought, I thought, of course, I have a little paranoia, which is part of the depression, excuse me. We really thought for a minute that Fox forgot we were on the air and we would joke about it. Jolie and I, we would go out to lunch and she would say, uh, don't touch me. It's not a problem. That's why we're at the counter. And we would actually talk about, they must have forgotten. So my first guest, because I don't look at this as like, oh, I'm having on, uh, though she's a brilliant actress, director, writer, Golden Globe nominee. She was on an incredible groundbreaking show. Ellen, uh, we're not going to talk about Ellen because kind of a douchebag, but we are going to, it's okay. It's okay. No, no, no. You, you, you want to know something? It's okay. I have nine followers, now I got seven. When I end up saying that I believe Jesus was either black or brown, and I have proof, then then I'll have four people. And I don't care. It's about mental wellness. No prisoners. We, we talk about it. Here she is, activist, mommy of three beautiful daughters, and a very average-looking husband. And I say that because he's too handsome. Um, the woman I should have married, uh, Jolie Fisher. How are you? Good. How are you? Hi. I, I love that. Her. I love that Should ramp I? up. Oh, there you are. Did you, did you like? Well, I know. You know, I got to get your stuff right because I know you. Because you How know, I'll you? correct you right when I get here. Of course. Oh, my God, you look good. Now you Thanks. didn't go through the works before that, did you? Because you look like. Uh, this is all me, babe. I wake up like this. Do you really? And tell me about the garage sale behind you. you, you have, what is it, uh, how much for the uh, Howdy Doody doll? There's what, what there's that? the bartender. The bartender's right here. Um, oh, my God. I had one of those. Did he smoke? <laughs> and he, like, mixes drinks. It's fabulous. Yeah, I had one of those I, when I was a kid. See, that's why I became an alcoholic. One of my first gifts, not a rocket or a, or a mechanical car. My mom was like, here's a bartender. Now don't wake me. <laughs> Now, now, I, I thanks for being on. Um, My pleasure. 
you know, I adore you. Uh, we're talking about addiction is, is really kind of our first, I know, right. Is, is really our topic. That doesn't mean that the callers and the other people we'll be talking to can't talk about other things because a lot of things go with addiction. And, um, you were raised in a very famous family. Okay. I was. They're behind. A lot of them are behind me too. I had. Tell us who I, they when, were. When, uh, Connie Stevens is my mother, and okay. Eddie Fisher was my father. Okay. Um, Carrie Fisher, my sister, no. and uh, there's lots of. Uh, there might be others that we don't know about out there because Eddie got right. around. How about Bobby Fisher? Anything about Bobby <laughs> Fisher? Big chess player. No, no relation, no relation. No. But I, but when I was listening to you, I was, I was feeling this. I, I'm, I was nodding my head. You couldn't see me in the little box up here that I was trapped in. But um, I, I grew up similarly. I mean, I wasn't raised by Eddie, and I say my first experience with drugs was as a toddler because, in fact, it kind of was. I witnessed my father as a toddler. Um, um, shooting drugs. And, um, and I didn't know that that was, uh, I thought that it was a vision or a memory because I didn't grow up with him. And I thought, how could I possibly have seen that in the short amount of time that I spent with him? But and how old are you about? Two. I mean, I had a memory of it and then I found, um, a letter that he had written me on, on, you know, yellow legal pad. And it was an apology of sorts because I, um, because he wrote a song called Through the Eyes of Jolie, and he thought this child is going to make the world a better place, and I think that's a huge fucking responsibility for a child, but he kind of put that on me mm -hmm. and, and, and basically apologized for doing what he did, you know, in what I was a witness to. So I was like, oh, my God, I really did see that. And um, oh, I, I can't believe now. Now, who were you with? You're there with your dad and your mom was there? You know, my mom and dad sort of met in a in a haze of black beauties and cocaine. I mean, they were they were both coming off of um, re rebound. Re they were both married to other people. Uh, right. My mother was married to an abusive. Do you remember the actor Jim Stacy? Sure. Who, who lost an arm and a leg and in the accident? You know who he is. But anyway, he. Uh, he was abusive with her, and my father was. You know, well, how can you be abusive with one arm and leg? I, I mean, come on. He come still on. had. He still had all of his. Oh, limbs I'm sorry. When he was I'm sorry. To my I'm just trying to find. You know, it's got to be some humor. You know what I mean? I'm not. I, I, I'm not a. You know, I'm not fucking fuck with Phil. I. I, I, I hear you. I hear no you. I've always tried to find the funny in all of it. Thank you. Um, and uh, Eddie had been fired by Liz, and Liz ran to the arms of Dick and Burton, and then. So Eddie, I think they met in like the first class lounge in JFK or the Plaza Hotel or somewhere like that. Yeah. yeah. And um, they were partying. They were, they were, um, they were codependent. And my father, you know, notoriously would say, uh, you know, comments about uh, how my mother was in bed and shit like that. But I, it wow. was, it was a treacherous um, or it was, you know, it could have been the makings of a life of crime, but it, 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 it wasn't fortunately because my mother sort of packed up two babies on each hip, my sister, Trisha Lee and I, and a diaper bag, and she was in a sequin gown and she's like, I'm, I'm done with this now. And how old were you then? Um, my sister was just, I mean, we were toddlers. My sister was an infant. Um, and then she divorced him or she left him. And then how long until you had anything to do with them? When I was 16, I was going to school in Europe and I said to my mom, I'm going to go stay with my dad. And she was like, uh, you should probably call him first. I mean, we saw him from time to time. Like he showed up loaded one time to take us to a Dodger game because, gosh, we loved baseball. I mean, it was like the most bizarre thing. And he's like in a white Cadillac and just right. all coked up or whatever he was at the time. And your I mom let you go with him and she, she knew all of this? I want to absolve her of responsibility. I think she was trying to, I, I, I don't, I don't know that part. I, yes, she did. And we got in a car accident. So there's that. Um, my, so my father was really absent. My mom would go in the other room and say, you know, it's Jolie's birthday. You might want to give her a call. And then there were times where there was just no communication at all. And at 16 years old, I went to New York and I said, can I stay with you? She kind of showed up on his doorstep and he was again loaded and, uh, stayed on up in heroin, his, right? 
he was a speedball guy. So that's oh, a combination okay. of heroin and cocaine, which is okay. festive. Was he working still? Was he working when you um, went to him at 16? Or? Yeah, he wasn't working at that time. He was holed up with his girlfriend at the time and, you know, would give me a couple hundred dollars and let me go wander the streets and go visit friends and not wander the streets. But you know what I mean? Like, sure. I was like, he couldn't parent me. How sure. was he going to suddenly parent me? Especially when you don't have your wits about you. And um, he was with Lynn Davis, who became Lynn Lear and has been married to Norman Lear for 107 years now. But um, they were, he dedicated his first book to her and spelt my sister's name wrong. I mean, it was like he was loaded. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, but I forced my way into a relationship with him. And it actually, I saw this video the other day, you know, because this is how my life played out. We were on Geraldo. You saw that. Eddie and Connie Amazing. on a double bill playing like, you know, music tents or theaters in the round one summer. And I yeah. sang backgrounds from my mom and I was in the audience and they came to me, of course, and he made me sing. It was like, uh, it was such a magical um, thing for me to see because I kind of had forgotten that moment. But in the clip, I say, I reached for Eddie at 16 and developed a relationship, which was true. I ended, ended up traveling with him. And, um, and was he high through all that? Was he still using through all of that? I don't think he was so much then. I, I think he, um, you know, I think he probably took pills and smoked some pot and stuff like that. I don't think he was using at that age, the harder stuff. Did you ever talk to him about that? I mean, did you ever say, look, you know, I, I mean, I saw you shooting up. I was a toddler. What, what Was there any type of uh, closure or comeuppance or did he ever get real about his addiction with you later in life? You know, he, no, I mean, not really. I, I didn't, re I didn't request that of him. I was just happy to have pieces and, and you're moments. not unconditional. What's that? Are, are you that unconditional? I mean, not, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, know. I was, I was a girl who wanted her daddy. That's what it was. Sure. And I was I, like, I, I Oh, that. I'm going to get him for a moment. And he's going to, and uh, I'm going to have his full attention. And I did. He was proud of me. He would always make me sing places. And he was like, sure. I'm a singer. You, she's a singer. And, you know, point his finger to the sky to get the high notes. And, but wasn't um, there a part of you, Jolie, at all where you felt, I mean, I understand trying to get that love for the parent. You know, my parents yeah. are, are gone. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying. So I'm using a medium. But, but I, you, you know, we always try. But, but wasn't there a part of you because you're, you know, you're so fearless about life and you're so honest. And one, one thing about Jolie, if you, you, you know, if you don't want the truth, she'll tell you it twice. And that's what I love about you. Which, I don't take yes for an answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. But, but I mean, isn't there a part of you? Cause, cause you're, you're pretty real where you, you were pissed off at yourself that you didn't go for the things that hurt, that you didn't clear the air. I mean, you wanted the love, but, but it was still superficial and it didn't, you know, there had to be a lot of pain you endured through, I, through that. I, I mean, I just never, I guess I never placed too many expectations on it. And I recognized myself in my father, in my father or my father in myself. I mean, I, I've struggled with the demons that, you know, Carrie Fisher and Eddie yeah. and Connie, you know, Trisha escaped it almost completely unscathed without yeah. any need for food or shopping or being famous or, or addiction to yeah. anything. And I'll tell you what, she's miserable. She's <laughs> miserable. And I've met her not, not happy. <laughs> I mean, if you don't want food and, and shopping and addiction, you know, why get out of bed? Unless you're right? depressed, which is next week's episode. No, no, no. I, you know, I'll I be back it. for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My brothers were the, um, you know, they didn't have any of the demons I had. They had off switches. They didn't need to wear fedoras to look taller. You know, they they were just regular humans, and and they didn't. Um, but there was a lot of baggage, and they we my my two older brothers we had uh, they had the same father. I had a different father, and their old man who was really a piece of shit left them when they were uh, th like four four and six, and never saw them again. And my brother, my oldest brother, spent a lot of his life looking for him, and when he found him. The guy said to my brother, if I wanted you in my life, you'd be there. 
And he said this to a 40-year-old man. And oh. I'll tell you something. My brother was never, you know, what was was never ever the same from that. And he wasn't the same before. So I guess my point is, you know. Uh, you know, at what point do you do do you give it up and let it go? And well, I love you unconditionally, which is all great. But but if you're not willing to bring it up to, to someone, uh, especially a father that that was, uh, and 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 he doesn't bring it up, isn't the isn't that a very thick? You know, I you know I read or, I read an interview with him since he's uh, gone. I, I read this interview that I had never read about him coming to see me in Cabaret nine yes. times. You were amazing. I, it, I, I went once. <laughs> Incredible. I didn't know you were big on the Nazis, but it no. was a wonderful play. No, but, I no, mean, well, good people know, on both sides, man. Good people on both sides. Yeah. That, so, <laughs> exactly. so, but he he said in this interview that it no no that he was that he would sit there he said no amount of times could i go sit in the audience to make up for what a shitty father i was and that wow. and that it just cuz i had done it that's before. huge yeah yeah in print and and um so when i was doing the show in san francisco for a couple of months i did spend a lot of time with him and his then wife um who they're both gone and um and he I think tried to not make it up to me, but he tried, you know, he just, he tried, he knew he couldn't, he knew he was incapable of it. And that was okay. At this point I had been married, you know, th then would have been, I was, you know, well into a decade of marriage now, 24 years. I had no children yet. I had stepsons, but I hadn't given birth to my own child. And I think that's something you that did like during the show and I right in the, sh right in the show, right in there. Amazing. In the second act, we didn't know you were pregnant and you know, you started crowning and I went, well, this is a, this is a cliffhanger. <laughs> I mean, that was like, you know, that was one of the darkest roles I've had to, had to play. And I did play it for a year and I, you know, I was it, playing a junkie and I kind of yeah. was a junkie. I mean, I was like thin. Were, were, were you a junkie then? Not a junkie. I'm just, you know, I'm exaggerating. But yeah, we we partied. We went out. We. Sure. I was like, I'm a Methodist actor, man. I hear you. And a lot of it with, you know, it's like I I have trouble to this day of of you know turning off the brain. And and uh, after a show, you know, there you are starring on Broadway. The show's over, and you were on such an incredible high. And my thing was, I I chased that high. I couldn't be grateful enough that okay, I just had you know, a good show or a concert or, or this, I had to recreate it. In my, I want that high again. I want that high again. And we keep, you, you I know, don't we, even know you not sober, by the way. Yeah, never that's met, we never met that way. Yeah. Oh, I wish I knew you then we'd have nine kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Not really healthy ones, but we'd have nine. They would kind of be, it'd be like a school of children. They'd all be connected one way or another by a long cord. Uh, but yes, I know you didn't, and uh, and and we had such great time. Uh, I'm sorry about Carrie. That had to be rough. Um, yeah, it, it, it was. It like it really like I've said this. It really like threw the earth off its axis for me because what I didn't realize is how. I, I mean, I knew that she was important to me, but I didn't realize like how deeply I would feel something like that. I mean, losing a sibling is. Yeah. Um, you know, just to, it's just, um, leveling, it's unfathomable. It's, you know, the great, you know, whatever. And, um, and, uh, you know, I think there are people that have said, you know, we could have lost her many, many, many times over the yep. years. Yep. Um, you so know, she never really was, I, I mean, she never really got a grip of that. Right. The, the, I, I, I mean, mean from what I hear that she was very good at cleaning it all up for yep. time rapidly you know the kind of yeah. detoxy whatever and working and writing and manic and i saw both of those things i yep. saw the low 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 yep. and i saw the crazy ma mania yeah was um, she bipolar yes okay did she admit it oh yeah she was like kind of a poster child for where you know sort of wearing that and that was that's hard to do too that's to have that responsibility difficult. and what happened is the whole world sort of was like, I say, you know, you lost Princess Leia, I lost my mirror. And the, and, and the mm. whole world was like, she was bipolar and had addiction and, and all of this. And if Carrie Fisher can survive this, so can I. And then she didn't. Oh. So I think uh, the world kind of had this collective like, 
you know, and I, I mean, not that we don't have that with a lot of folks that we lose early in their life, but it was obviously super, um, you know, just crazy making for me. Um, and you know, I mean, it is obviously it's a couple of years now and, 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 you know, things get easier and you talk about it and then it, you know, something small will hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, the, I wish that we would have Carrie's commentary on what's happening in the world today so oh, much, you know? There's the smartest person I ever met. I mean, yeah. fast, fast, fast. From fast. The Edge, what a brilliant, brilliant movie, book, and and she was just so prolific and and, and so terrific. And now I want to talk about your involvement with uh, the Fisher Foundation because that you're doing this, I got to tell you, is is amazing. And tell me, tell us about the uh, the Fisher House. Well, the, so the, so the, Fisher, the Fisher Foundation is sort of still in the making. It is, it is, was my homage, my dream, my, you know, my offering to the memory of my sister and for, and my father, basically, um, to, to, you know, to, to, fi to find a way to help young women or, or, or men or everybody. But at first it was that these, all these young women reached out to me that had um, mental health issues and, and then I thought, well, gosh, some of them don't have insurance and they want to get help and or they have kids and they are leaving abusive homes or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And they reach very, out to you? Yes. On social media. Got it. And so I'm like their space mom. I'm J mama. And I'm, you know, and I'm trying to well, be all things to you. everybody, which is which is a huge responsibility, but I'm taking it on. So Alcott Center, which is here in Los Angeles, approached me. Forever, right? Yeah. They approached me to, um, you know, just to be a part of their board and and gave me some um, some freedom to have a, a, a um, fundraiser with them and have my book signing and all that kind of thing. And as I started to learn more about them, I was like, I, I have to get more involved in this. And the board decided that we would open up this home, this house, and they have honored me by... Um, by using my name, and it is operational already. It is the Fisher House for Alcott Center, and it's and, a forty-six it bed. It's like it's in um, Los Angeles, in like okay. Mid Wilshire, you know that kind of area. I think maybe I'm not supposed to say exactly where it is. I don't know. Okay. We need an um, address. Okay, we, we don't fuck around, Jolie. Okay, we need so an address. <laughs> this particular house is yeah. forty-six beds. It's full in the time of COVID with men who are. Um, formerly incarcerated yep. who have um, addiction issues and mental health disorders who are trying to reimmerse themselves in society and they are and the Alcott Center is doing that for them and with them and they have um, you know obviously group therapies and, and medical care and um, you know people who would, who, homeless, who would be homeless who would be homeless are that's so incredible I mean uh, that's we need so much how do you choose who gets in? I mean, how does that work? Oh, I don't. I, I I don't know. I mean, once it's full, it's full. You have to, yeah. uh, I guess, it's apply or. Heads. Yeah, and That's the next one, the, the next one. I want Fisher houses all over. I want yep. the next one, women. I want women to be able to bring a child if necessary yep. if they're trying to get out of an abusive situation. Yep. Um, and um, and I just I find um, that I'm just a warrior. I always yes, have been. Yep. Even even in my darkest times, like this is affecting me right now, what we're doing, what this, uh, you know, I don't want to say like wine from my, you know, castle on the hill that I'm in, uh, in jail. I will say, right. though, that I have, we've all come from, my daughter came home from college. My husband's been working in Atlanta. That's why the marriage is working so well. Sure. And and I have a child that that is bipolar and sure. I have three teenage girls in my house, which is like Satan's trifecta. Sure. And um, <laughs> the, it, this is hard and everybody mm -hmm. handles it differently. Like I'm a, I'm a, you know, fully capable, able bodied woman and I'm having a hard time. Yeah. So imagine putting all those personalities together and oh it's, um, and so I've been trying to take advantage of it in a creative way. And in a, and my mother taught me, reverence for underserved and underdogs and that's so great yeah. how was connie because i adore her she used to come to the shows we were taping such a good classy beautiful woman how is she's, she she's good she good. she's okay you know she's lonely in these times yeah. and you know we go over there and we're like we want to bubble wrap her you know and not sure. touch her 
in case yeah. she might get this thing that's going around. But um, the other day she was just like, just, she said, will you just hold my hand? And, uh, and it just like affected me so deeply that that's, that's what she wanted. She wanted touch and she wanted mm. to be held. And so I obliged with mm. my mask. Yeah. Different times. I we mean. Need, we need more hearts like yours. I thank you. I miss you. I miss the creative connection, the fire we had on that stage. Oh, you my God. Did we laugh? Warrior. We, so many laughs. <laughs> and if we ever went through a woman, I remember the day that we, we, we hated the script so much that the cast and half of the crew went to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And <laughs> For had a food. smart lunch. That's right. For a smart lunch. That's right. <laughs> and, and the network was like, where, where, where is where, everyone? Wh what? What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't do things right back then and I'm still learning. And that's what this is about. I could have handled it differently, but the best thing about it was you. And I thank you for being on. I have I a feeling you. we're going to find something else to. Maybe we'll do the gin game in 30 years, <laughs> you know, on Broadway. Yeah, I'll fall off the wagon. I'll be back on the vodka and we'll just, you know, we'll be at the Jamie Farr Theater. Days of Wine and Roses. Yeah, yeah. I got two, two, two kings. I could see myself doing that. <laughs> uh, adore I you. you. Thank you. I love you too. Say hi to those beautiful daughters. Thanks. I will. Ah, uh, miss you. Oh boy, I should have. I should have gone for that. Uh, what a perfect segue to my next uh, guest, uh, Mr. Kirk Sonos. And I got turned on a Kirk by his amazing photography that somebody sent me a picture from his Instagram uh, at the height of the. Black Lives Matter protests in downtown LA where my daughter lives and was involved in them as well. And I'm so proud. And I looked at this gut-wrenching journalistic photo of what appeared to be a homeless gentleman in a wheelchair, bleeding profusely from the face, who was hit uh, with rubber bullets by the LA PD. And I just started following Kirk and found his his photography really brilliant. I, I collect photography. I wish I was a photographer. And then I got to know a little bit about him through his um, Instagram and what an activist that he is. Let's show that photo that made me say to my producer, Travis Townsend, by the way, who we will bring up later. Look, here is this photo of this gentleman, I mean, bleeding profusely so close uh, to the officer's uh, let, let's bring in Kirk. Um, Mr. Sonos, welcome. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, all right. Just another day right. here in LA. <laughs> yeah, another. <laughs> are you quarantined? I am. Um, I would say probably the only time I really leave is actually to attend protests. That's about it. And yeah. I haven't been doing it as much lately, but I have been going out. It's just less frequently. Uh-huh. Can, can you tell us how this photograph came about? And I hear you you know the gentleman? I do not know the gentleman. I actually got to know more about him after I shot the photo. Okay. Um, it's just that that photo went so insanely viral that uh, so many caseworkers that had dealt with him before and that are now currently dealing with him reached out to me and were like, hey, we know this guy and like started to talk to me. And I started to find out more with him over time, but uh, I did not know him previous to that. I had seen him in downtown because I frequent downtown all the time, but I did not know him. Now, did you watch this horrific incident unfold or when you when you found this gentleman, had it already happened? Was he already bleeding like that? Uh, both kind of. Um, so I'm in, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say I watched the exact moment that the bullet struck him in the face and everything. Okay. Um, it was actually quite odd because I was taking photos, but I wasn't aware that uh, Charf, which is uh, the homeless individual's name, okay. um, I wasn't aware that he had gotten shot in the face. Um, it wasn't until after the arrest had happened that my friend that was with me is like, hey, did you see the homeless guy that got shot in the face? And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, the rubber bullets, like uh, he got shot like directly in the face. Um, and that's when I went, uh, to go review the photos that I had taken for the day. And I happened to capture it. Um, I had initially started taking photos because officers had started firing 
And I was like, oh yeah, this is the perfect time to be taking photos in case anything goes wrong. I have photo evidence of you know what happened and lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Um, but yeah, so they're basically boxing us in. Um, it's a tactic they use pretty commonly uh, mm-hmm. when they're trying to arrest uh, protesters. Uh, this is my this is would be my second night in a row actually getting uh, arrested by LAPD. Mm-hmm. Um, and what prompted yeah. you to protest? What, what where where are you emotionally in this this systemic racism that just has never you know has never not been here, uh, and now I think is coming out of the woodwork because for the first time I I, I feel that that racists have a leader that um makes it okay i said i wouldn't get political but a lot of the time i'm full of shit but but it seems like the world is purging but you know it's between the pandemic between the 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 racial complications that that have been here forever everything at once is just starting to come to a head and and i think it's causing an incredible amount of of fear and anxiety and hope it's like I'm watching these protests and I'm like, okay, I'm seeing people I wouldn't have seen March 10 years ago. I'm seeing a propensity of all different kinds of minorities coming forward. Where do you see it going and why did you get involved? Um, that's interesting that you say that because if this were to be happening 10 years ago, I don't know if I'd be a part of these marches. Um, well, I don't you're know if I'd be. You're, how old are you? I'm now 30. Uh, okay. But if it was 10 years ago, I'd be 20. So, And why wouldn't um, you have been in it 10 years ago? Not that I would be opposed to it, but there's so many things that I have learned over the years um, and how things work and how things are affected that I can't ignore these things anymore. And I, as you can tell, like I'm, I'm a white male in America. I have like, I have the least amount of things to worry about. I don't think about these things until it's said to me the right way or I it's, it has to be brought to my attention kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's essentially what happened. I've been a part of different parts of activism, um, animal rights activism, and then environmental activism are my two main things. Okay. But when I started okay. seeing some of the issues surface uh, when it came to the when it came to the Black Lives Matter movement, I was like, how can I be fighting for these things and how I've never once thought about like my fellow black American, like and the struggles that they go through in the way that I'm thinking of of them now because there's there's so much great information that's come out lately or at least that i've noticed as of lately because of social media you're saying things we've never known about we're also we're in the age of information now like this the internet is a beautiful and terrible thing all at the same time yes it is and it's it allows people to self-educate themselves on a lot of things and sometimes self-educate them on stuff that they think is good information, but it's not. But you know, you um, know, Kirk, there's a bunch of people out there who think I'm a douchebag. So yeah, just hey, show you. I'm sure there's people that think the same for me because of that photo. So. No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> so, so when you decided, okay, I'm protesting. What was, what was the moment where you said, "That's it, I'm out there." I mean, you're, you know, you're a white. You're not. You say you're a white guy, but are have you ever? Are you all? You're not. I mean, you got something, right? Yeah, I'm half half Greek, half Puerto Rican, half uh, but Greek. I'm white. I'm white passing as hell. So, and I don't white speak Spanish. Greek. So, <laughs> right, right. Have you ever been a recipient of any racism or bullying or anything like that? Not when it comes to that. No. Okay. Uh, when it comes to my cultural and race stuff, never. Okay. So what made you jump in? You were, you were, what was the moment? Um, I guess seeing the video and I have, I've to this day have not finished the video because it, it's, it's something I can't like, I, I, I can't, I don't, I, I mean, I guess I could, but I don't want it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I have yeah. not, I cannot, I have not seen it. I swear. I've maybe, I've maybe seen it. two or three minutes. I've seen two or three minutes of it. Maybe. Me too. And I was like, that's enough for me to know. Like, yeah. that's enough. And you hit the streets uh, and you found yourself in this incredible movement. Where is it going to go? What What do you hope happens? I hope that it incites major systemic change inside of the U.S. And for those that think it's not happening, there has been so many things that have happened since these protests have started that I would highly question would have ever have happened if the protests would have never started. 
um, you know, George Floyd's uh, murders, uh, the police officers being arrested. Um, there's still stuff we have to fight for here and we're still going for it, but there's a lot of things like even within LA alone, um, how the national guard got removed from LA, how, uh, the curfew got lifted from LA, the whole reason why people were getting uh, arrested in the first place, um, unjustly in my opinion. I I totally agree. And, And, you know, I'm a native Californian. I grew up here and, um, I know you're, you're very concerned with the homeless uh, population out here, me being born and raised out here, and I and, and my my daughter lives downtown. And when I go see her, I can't believe that a country with this type of mass of wealth has such a home. And and you know they really don't give a shit. What is your involvement, and and what can be done in your opinion? Because you know whether it's the state level or the federal level. Uh, these, you know, we're turning our back on this problem. And I would say 90% of the people on the street are mentally ill and need help. And they're, they're addicts. And if they're not addicts, there are gang members that go up and down these tents and they're getting these people high for free the first or second time. We know this happens. And then, and then they're addicts. A lot of them don't want help because they don't know they need help. It's a problem that just is, you know, insurmountable. What, what, what is your take on that? What would you do if you were the mayor of LA? That is such a heavy question. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't know. And I don't know if I have an answer for that, but I think the biggest thing is people's mentality towards homeless people need to change, needs to change. I myself, my mentality has changed a ton. I used to be a bike messenger for about six years and homeless people actually to a point because i frequented city downtown city areas all day every day i'm getting asked for money and like i'm a bike messenger i don't have i don't really have money right and they became an annoyance to me but i never saw them as a and i never saw them in the light of that could be me like we have like someone like me has more in common with a homeless person than i do with some ugly art billionaire or some head of a company that owns multiple businesses whatever like beautifully put it's kind it's it's something that they want you to hate the people that are closest to you and that you're the closest to their situation um rather than uh see the similarities that there are there and they're people like and of course you're going to be mentally ill if you're on the street imagine when you're on the street for a year two years however long it may be and you feel like no one cares about you Exactly. Like what I've you're always, gonna totally lose your mind. Like yeah, who who wants to be sober living on the sidewalk? Exactly. Like it's wanna be. You know? I mean, I I myself I don't part it's crazy that I'm a part of this episode because the episode is about addiction, but I've never touched anything in my life, including alcohol or any anything. You ever suffered uh, from depression or anxiety? Oh for sure. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And and especially uh, right now. Okay. Uh, now, how are you feeling now with all that's going on? Does that amp your uh, depression at all? It does for me. Yes, hundred percent. Um, and that's just because I'm, I'm, especially as of recent years, I'm very empathic. Um, I, I see myself in situations of what would, what would it be like if I was in that situation? How would I feel like if I was, I was in that situation? And I do that a lot now, especially since uh, going vegan about four years ago. I just think about things like that. And it definitely and you have this gratefulness. You, you go, what if it was me? That empathy you're talking about. So many people who suffer from depression, they don't get to that grateful level, that empathy. Yeah. How do you balance both? When did the empathy become such a big part of your life? And does it help your depression? Or what do you do for, for your depression? I... I don't know if I could say empathy helps my depression. If anything, it possibly makes it worse. And that's, it's a very weird thing to say because I feel like as a person, as you grow as a person, you should be more and more empathetic towards people, but constantly thinking of putting yourself in bad situations or situations that, you know, where you want to feel where that person's coming from, it makes you kind of feel those feelings that would, you would have in those situations. And it just kind of makes the depression a little bit more worse because you're thinking about other people's situations and not just your own sometimes. So it can make you pretty, pretty upset and pretty sad um, sometimes. And so there's a thin line of, oh my God, that could be me, or 
Thank goodness that isn't me. Yeah, like right with Charf with Charf being shot in the face with the rubber bullet uh, by LAPD. Like I can't even look. I can't look at the photo anymore. Like it, I can look at the photo, but I usually look at the corners of the photo because if I look directly at his face, it's so evident the pain and like absolute trauma he's going through. Yeah, like, I, 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 I know you're probably not allowed to talk about it. Is he okay? Is he recovering? Do we know anything? Generally speaking, just because of HIPAA privacy law and a release of information with him, I can't talk about specific details, but generally speaking, he's okay. Um, but yeah, he's, he's suffered a super traumatic experience and he doesn't even know what he, he's so out of it. He doesn't know what happened. He's like, that's how bad it is. That's yeah. hard. Well, I, I, yeah. I wish him the best. We got to vote. What else? um honestly just keep on fighting there's different levels of it though um it can go as simply as donating donating whatever money you have or not even donating supporting uh black businesses in general black owned businesses um donating like you said um showing up speaking out educating people or educating yourself um there's so many little things it's there's there's so many things you can do besides posting a black square to your social media like um Uh, getting active and there's different levels some people can get more involved some people cannot but like i think it's a beautiful thing and i think that's why the work weeks that we have and how much people work in this day and age it keeps us from being able to do things like this and think about these things and uh, now that we have the time (laughs) now we have the time and and when we go back to work let's still find the time any anyway let's show some more your photos because you're such an amazing photographer tell us uh, i love this one tell me about this um, I don't know this lady's name, but she was like the unofficial, like spokesperson leader during this. This is, was the heat of the moment where the protests were very bad. Um, this is at the moment where there was rioting and there was looting. It was in the Fairfax district. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's such an odd thing because even during that time when all the rioting and looting was happening, there was less people getting arrested. It. Yeah. It's the exact opposite of what you would think. And then when it became- Why do you think? Why do you think? Did the cops just go, fuck it, let them burn their own shit down or what? Um, I think there were actually scared at one point. Uh-huh. Like instead, of being, instead of being the oppressor, they felt talk like they me, might, you know. Talk to me about the looting because to me, the looting is, it, it's the same old thing. The haves and the have nots. They're tired of being on the short end of the stick. The black and brown people- they, they're, they're, they're tired that they don't get the education, that they don't get the health care, that they don't get the opportunity, and they're 150% right. And when you're looting and you have these white people that are kind of on the fence of going, you know, that really aren't open to racial divide, just like the wackos who think that COVID is a hoax, just like those people that you know you'll never get. When the looting happens, and it even happens to black businesses, you yeah. lose the people that are on the fence that can maybe say, well, maybe it is time. You say, nope, they're breaking the law. They're criminals, just like I always known, and they and they move on. So when you see the looting, and a lot, like I say, a lot of them were mom-pop places that supported the lower-income neighborhoods, how do you, how do you balance that, you know? Because I mean, I saw white guys looting. I saw I saw a lot of you know stuff going on. It's it's to get the attention. It's to it's to make a statement of we're tired of 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 this. But how do you compare it to the peaceful protests? Are they really going to get something out of it besides fear? And doesn't that play into the racism of a lot of white people? Well, uh, a few things to hit there, but um, if you look at the history, I don't get me wrong. I don't necessarily support the idea of getting violent and looting and rioting, but right. I know that it exists, and I know and I understand the reason why it happens. Right now, that same I. person, that same person that wants to make an excuse of like, oh, I don't know if I want to support this, or I don't know if this is right for me to be actively anti-racist or to support black lives matter because they're looting and rioting but meanwhile they still support their sports team that just went rioting in the streets because their team lost so great point. like great point man you speak like, the truth, kirk 
it's it, people people will apply certain things to certain things to excuse their bad behavior or so, stuff sure. that you know it's not it's not the right mentality to have but right in yeah. the his in the history of the u.s when something like huge like this when you're fighting for civil rights or people are trying to fight for their freedoms and their rights and against injustice there has almost always like there's statistically almost always has been rioting or looting sure boston tea party the civil rights movement sure uh, just go back as far as you want to go you can Absolutely. look this up there's like a wikipedia page like dedicated to all the riots yeah. and, and looting that have happened in history yeah. that have led because what happens is people won't pay attention until they're inconvenienced then when people are inconvenienced or something is, has a shock factor enough to capture their attention, it's kind of hard to get people's attention when you're just politely and peacefully on the sidewalk. Sure. Like, and hey, I, Black and Lives I, Matter. And I, get that. and I get that. I mean, you know, I saw the looting and it's, you know, I had some friend stores that were looted that were unbelievable people that gave back to the community. It's just, yeah. you know, it becomes an all or nothing thing. And, but, but, but then again, it has, it has to happen. But a couple white guys talking about it, um, it's interesting, and and you're bringing up some some great points. And uh, man, you really seem to have your shit together. You really do. Um, show uh, Travis, uh, who's our producer, and also uh, wrote that great intro, and that's him playing the harmonica. Travis Townsend is my partner in crime in this. Let's show one more of Kirk's pictures, and then we'll take a one of our callers. Yes, this go. one's actually this photo right here is actually probably my. If we want to use the term successful photo uh, during the protests, this is probably the the next one besides the one of Charf being shot in the face that really w kind of went out there. I love uh, that. Yeah, this I, I this that. speaks vol this. I don't have to say anything about this photo. That photo speaks volumes all by itself. Yeah. Like that. That's just like these kids should not be out here holding these signs. And I don't think there's anything wrong with them being out here holding these signs, but we should not be in the position where a kid has to grab your attention to make you pay attention. Like, th 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 this is wrong. Like there's injustice like left and right in the U S as much as we think we're the perfect nation. Like, and the kids in cages yeah. are coming from the top, top, top. And they're still yep. in right now as we do this, Kirk, I thank you. Um, I, I hope you'll come back. You're, you're, I don't want Jolie to come back because you know it's boring. But you, you have so much to say, and uh, uh, stay at it. We need to hear from more young men like you. So I thank you, and I wish you the best. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. You bet, Kirk. Be well. All right, we're going to go to our uh, one of our callers, Miss Nancy Ryan, who I'm going to see if it's the Nancy Ryan I know from <laughs> Las Vegas. It's the me. comic Nancy Ryan. And your hubby, if I can say, is it okay to say? Is, Go ahead, yeah. is a buddy of mine, and I know a buddy of yours, and uh, uh, John Bazaar, the wonderful. What are you doing on? What's going on? This is, uh, what's happening? Nothing, you know. It's like uh, I just, I found a link in my email. I showed up, and here you are. What the <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what's on your mind. What do you, what do you talk? The, the uh, addiction is our topic, but we'll yeah. talk about anything okay well you know i've i've been sober now 33 and a half years wow yeah that is amazing thank you and then uh, that's from alcohol drugs and then uh i found i had a gambling problem some decades later oh, and boy. Now almost 13 years of uh abstinence from that and that was probably the worst of all of them but uh Everything that's been on your show tonight uh, regarding like the depression and the uh, everything we're dealing with now with the world it is today and, and people are confused, they're learning yeah. uh, about things they never thought about before and it becomes so heavy if you're susceptible, I think, to depression yeah. or addiction, you're going to end up in bed if you don't have the support, you have to look for it. Uh, getting your support because you are a warrior. I mean, 33 years, all the things you've stopped. I mean, my, my hat off to you. How do you get support in this, in this environment now? Uh, there's plenty of resources online. Um, so many, you know, uh, I'm not supposed to say the name, uh, okay, sure. you know, but there are 12 step right. programs out there yep. that are available to everybody and anybody online. There's online meetings, or yep. you can gather tools, you know, so you can hopefully cope with these types of situations in a easier way. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and, and 
Nancy, you, you know, it's funny because it's like you got clean and then the gambling just became another thing or you were gambling while you were using or how, how did the gambling come in? I was completely clean and sober for, I don't even know how many years, probably about 13, 14 years. Yep. And I was married previously to the wonderful John Bazaar. I was married to this other guy. Right. And I was what was his talk. story? Was he an addict? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's amazing how we find each other, isn't it? It's like magnets, you know? Yeah. Moth to yeah. a flame. That's it. <laughs> That's it. So, yeah, uh, he introduced me to gambling. I was doing a show at a casino up in Connecticut. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, sat down at a blackjack table and it was like I met the love of my life. Uh huh. And, and I was like, we won your ass off, right? I did. I did. And I've been, I chased it for years. I chased so what do you think? Go ahead. Finish it. Yeah. Yeah. I chased that one win for, for years. It was like, well, if I, if I did that, I can do that every time. And yeah. I'm going to be the best at this that the world's ever seen. I am the champion of gamblers. And, you know, maybe I did win here and there, but it wasn't very long before that took a serious, serious nosedive. And I think out of all the addictions I've had to deal with, gambling has definitely been the worst. Well, that says a lot. And why? Uh, it's because it's purely emotional, you know, like um, if you're drunk, yeah. you walk out of a building and, you know, you're staggering and people are going, that guy's drunk. Right. That guy's got a problem. If you're gambling, you can walk out like this and nobody knows what's going on except you. And so That's nobody's brilliant. going to walk. That yeah. is brilliant. Now, now, how is the rush different from using and getting high? to the high of gambling or is, does it feed the same thing? It yeah. does. And I, what is that? The feeling of control, power, euphoria. Is that, what's that? It's that euphoric. Uh, I don't know if it's power, a rush, a high, it's the rush. Um, yeah. you know, when I was drinking or doing drugs, it was always that romanticism of setting up your drugs opening that new bottle, pouring yes. it. Oh my God, um, I'm getting the hair on my... Yeah. Yes, yes. And with gambling... And it is romanticized. And, and, and it is with gambling. It's the beautiful casinos and the beautiful people and the free booze and the free rooms and the free food. And uh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, the peeling off of the dollar bills and you know, slowly putting them into a machine. This is going to be my time. Yeah. It's like a romantic novel, a bad one. Yeah. 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 And, and where did you get your strength? I mean, 33 years yeah. ago, what was your bottom? If I can ask. Uh, it's a little bit of a story. I'll try to make it brief. Um, I was a professional athlete. Okay. I was a professional figure skater, ice dancer. Okay. Is that right? <laughs> it is right. Where, where at? Like, like I was in New York. I was training okay. out in New York. Okay. Jersey, Connecticut. Yep. And, um, I was, uh, you know, uh, actively using for many years. And uh, while I was while training. While you were skating. While I was skating. Okay. I was like that kid that people would go, wow, she's great. What a shame. It would always follow up with what a shame, you know. How old were you at this time when you were using and skating? Oh, God. From ages, uh, I started probably about 14, 15. What were you doing at, wow. What were you doing at 14, 15? What, what was the... Uh, Smoking a lot of weed and uh, there, champagne. That's what started. Champagne will do it. Yeah. When they're out of cold duck, it's the champagne. Yeah. Or the Boone's Farm. Right. And just yeah. hide Me and the rabbis. <laughs> with you and, yeah. Wanted to be Sammy Davis Jr., you know? Yeah, exactly. So you were 14. Did anyone in your family know you were getting high? No. No one. No. Your mom, your coach, no one. Mm -mm. Not as far as I know. Maybe they did. Nobody said anything. Did you skate uh, better high? Oh, no. Okay. But you I, were still great. I would just go to the side of the boards and watch everybody else and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Got it. Got and it. I was, uh, I would train harder when I needed to. It, it was just, 
And a lot of it came from just years of uh, insecurity, Um, you know, not believing in myself. Everything is bad. Everybody hates me. So why bother? I'd rather give up than fight. That kind of thing. And where did you find the courage 33 and a half years ago? Yeah. Um, I was literally, uh, my mother was, uh, that's when she found out. Uh, I had gone on like a 10-day bender from my birthday, October 8th to October 18th. It was 10 days straight. Who's Coke? What what was it? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, because it was the 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So at the end of that, I was so sick. And uh, my mother was dragging me to the car, you know, trying to carry me uh, to take me to the hospital. Because I was just, you know, getting very, very sick every five minutes. I had nothing left to expel. Sure. And uh, I was, I was out on my way out. And I remember thinking to myself that this is the way my life is going to be. This is it. If things don't stop today, you know. And um, the next day, I didn't go to the hospital. I begged my mother, please. I promise. I. Pro- I was one of the lucky ones that, that was it. I was young, I was uh, 86, I was 22, 22 years old. And, and you just stopped? I, with help of, you know, going sure. to- Of course, and it works. And, um, and li- to, start, to stop at that age, I mean, what a warrior, what a strength you had. Were you raised around uh, addiction or alcohol or any of that? Not really, no. It, uh, a lot of my habits were defense mechanisms to deal with the insecurity, the bullying. Yep. Um, yep. It, it was pretty brutal for me. The numbing, the numbing man. You just, you just numb it. I it, couldn't. You know, it works for a while. And then it turns on you. It sure does. Like, oh, God, I wish I could be bullied right now. Because <laughs> fucking killing myself. I know. It's like your best friend, you know, and then you have to cut that away. Get rid of your, your, what you thought was your buddy. Okay. So you're taught, let's say you're talking to a 20 year old woman right now who's watching this and Mm -hmm. is an addict and feels that if she stops, she'll die. If she stops, she won't have a life. If she stops, she won't have friends. Uh, The fear alone will kill her. She's happier. High. Her family doesn't care. She suffers anxiety, depression. I believe anxiety, depression, and substance. I don't think you can have one without the three. Hand in hand. Hand in hand. What would you tell that young lady right now? I would tell her that there is a better way. That you can live a really good life, a whole life. You can be who you want to be, who you see, who you've always hoped to be that it doesn't have to be the way that you're living. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. You know, and you will have friends. You'll have better friends. Friends that Real actually friend. Real right? friend. Friends are there even when you run out of shit. <laughs> the real friends, like right? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, yeah. we, we need warriors like you to come on it. That's why it's called No Prisoners, because it's that type of a thing. You got to really go for it because, and it was also the prison... I felt I was in prison so much of my life before I got clean. And I still battle with things. I still battle with emotional things and, and triggers and, and things that, you know, get me going or things that used to make me reach for something. And, and sometimes I'll reach for something, uh, you know, maybe uh, extra this or extra food or, or I'll buy something to fill that fucking big dark hole we all have. We all have that dark hole. How big is it is something else. What we fill it with is something else. But I think you and I that have, okay, what, 56 years of sobriety between us? Yeah. When it ain't the good shit, we could fill that hole until we die, and we will because we're filling it with shit that doesn't fill us. And it's okay. It's okay if it doesn't fill up. It's okay to have a little bit of room in there, you know? It's just a matter of how you deal with it. Isn't it? It's okay. You know, I'm a nut. (laughs) (laughs) And you're a comic. 
on top of do you talk about this on stage do you get into any of that about or do you do you not yeah i used to um sometimes depending because of the nature of the show that i work on now sure different but um yeah i used to have a big chunk about it yeah i used to say a little thing about it but you know you work in vegas and you talk about being sober and you, you have four people in the front row that are crocked out of their minds and they're like oh what, the fuck? what am i gonna do now you know and you know it's not like i have material so i can't really go there but listen i do want to thank you and your husband john because uh and i i don't look i'm doing a podcast i'm i'm gonna get personal for a minute but when uh when my brother was sick paul oh. rest his soul and uh um uh, he was uh, dying of cancer, uh, and and you and John would 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 now did he bake that incredible baklava? Because that was my brother's favorite thing. They and, loved him, right? Yeah, and and they loved each other. And I know a lot of John's goodness uh, must come from his other half, and, and that is you. And I want to kind of know how much he loves you, and 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 uh, you know you're a testament to everything we're trying to do on the show. I would love to have you back. I would and, love it. Anytime, uh, because you you know you speak the truth and what you say is so right on. Anytime, and, uh, and I thank you, my love, my strength to both of you. Thanks. I hope Vegas opens up so we can hang out. Yeah. That would be nice, and uh, we're here for you. Yes, same here. All right, we love you. Love you, Nance. Bye. Love you, John. Too. Thank you for being on the first podcast of No Prisoners. My thanks to. Uh, the one and only Jolie Fisher and Kirk Sonios and my man, Mr. Travis Townsend, our producer and our harmonica person. Stay well, look for mental wellness and uh, no prisoners. Okay, set yourself free. While this podcast may discuss medical issues and at times answer or discuss listeners' questions, this podcast is not offering any individual medical advice nor meant to substitute for individualized professional medical treatment or advice. So please remember that all content is for informational purposes only. And please consult with your own healthcare provider for your own issues and diagnosis. If you think you may have a medical emergency, do the right thing and call your doctor or go to a local emergency room or call 911 immediately. Never delay seeking individualized help for a problem based on something discussed here. Take care of yourself. You're worth it. Mm-hmm.